Father in heaven, we uh, come to you this evening, um, want to be led by your spirit, to uh, gain wisdom, to grow in our knowledge of, of the truth in your word, God, to grow in our um, our ability to, um, to to hear you speak to us um, in, in any fashion or any way that you, you deem it uh, best, uh, whether it's through other people, through your word, through uh, circumstances, through nature. God, we, we just want to be attentive to you, God. And uh, Lord, I pray that um, the things that uh, your servant Steve has prepared this evening, uh, pray, God, that, uh, that you'll have a profound impact on each one of us, God, that we can, that we can walk away tonight just uh, edified, encouraged, and uh, ready to, uh, you know, to continue striving to uh, be the best we can be, the best people we can be, the best disciples we can be. God, we uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for uh, the sacrifice. Pray that you guide us this evening as we Amen. So, yeah, guys, uh, I'm grateful. I, I do want to um, just kind of recap a little bit. So we've been talking about how do we tell this story? So we're doing the 5,000 feet view of this subject. And then two weeks or two, two whenever we get back to this series again, we're going to do it in a very super practical way to where you could condense it. The reason I wanted to do this big view is you could go back. We put these lessons on our website. You can go back and listen. So if you're feeling like, okay, but how did that part get explained and how can I flip it for myself in such a way I can explain it to others? So this is why we're doing this more bigger picture of it, but we're going to make it easier to communicate and prayerfully it could be communicated in less than 15 minutes. All right. So recapping, we've talked about creation, fall, Israel, and now we're going to talk about Jesus today. And a part of that is the Bible has a worldview, and a worldview answers these following questions. Why are we here? What's our problem? What's the solution? Where are we going? We were all made in the image of God. Everyone you could think of that is a person was made in the image of God, regardless of what they believe or how they practice those beliefs. They are all made in the image of God. Creation was designed for good. You were created good, even if some days you don't feel that way, and everything around us is good. Genesis chapter 1, God said everything was good, so creation was created for good. Relationships were positive. Adam and Eve were in unity. God and Eve, I mean, God and Adam and Eve were unified. Creation was unified. All relationships were tight, they were good. But then in Genesis 3, the serpent comes and says, I want you to be like God. I mean, you could be like God if you eat from this tree. And they ate from the tree, and they were exiled from the presence of God. And then God said, okay, I'm not done with this creation project. I'm going to call a person, Abraham. And then from the call of Abraham, I'm going to choose Israel. And then from Israel, I'm going to use this nation to be a light to the rest of the nations, to show them what it means to be a partner with me and be in covenant with me. Israel failed. You know, the rescuers end up needing rescuing, which happens sometimes. You know, it's, 
it's happened. I've known people try to save other people and they themselves needed to be saved. And so the world is fractured. The Gentile world, from at least the biblical perspective, is morally bankrupt. The Israelites are morally bankrupt. All the messianic figures from King David to, um, to Cyrus, some people consider Daniel a messianic figure, they're all either deeply flawed or they're temporal. Like Daniel's gone. We'll, we'll never get another Daniel again. And so many of the Old Testament prophets predicted that God would raise up a Messiah to redeem his people, to bring his people back. Now, in Isaiah in particular, it wasn't just to bring his people back, but bring back others. So let's read Isaiah 59 together. This is really important in terms of introducing Jesus. Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ears too dull to hear. But your inequities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case for integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their path. They have turned crooked. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along with them knows peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice but found none, for deliverance but as far away. For our offenses are many in your sight. Our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us and we acknowledge our inequities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. Whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased. There was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance. 
he wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies, retribution to his foes, and he will repay the islands their, do- islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising sun, they will receive his glory. He will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is, in, who is on you will not depart from you. My words I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips and on the lips of your children, on the lips of their descendants from this time on forever, says the Lord. So Isaiah here, he's sharing this poem and he's trying to help Israel understand that they have been separated from God and the, the, the poem is dark. He's like, truth is stumbled in the streets. No one even looks for truth. If you do evil, people will celebrate you. And if you do good, they, you become, a, you become um, someone they want to go up against. But what he says here in verses uh, six, 16 through 17, 18, God enters the story and says, I'm going to come and redeem this people. I'm going to come and restore this people. See, no one knew it then, we know it now, but no one knew it then how God was going to do that. They figured he'll raise up another Moses, he'll raise up another prophet, but he raised up his son. Anyone knows what this word means and why that's significant? Flesh, come on. What else does that mean? (laughs) Good stuff, Lenny, I appreciate you. What the, why is the incarnation significant? Let's just say a person lived a sinless life and offered themselves up. Would they have accomplished the same thing as Jesus? They never sinned, and they said, I want to die for all of humanity. Would they have accomplished the same thing as Jesus? No. Why not? Because they didn't have the power over death. Okay, why not? They were not God. Okay. Lincoln. I mean, incarnation, I think that's, that's God becoming flesh. You know, it's not like human beings who's already flesh. I mean, it's God kind of reducing himself and becoming human so that he can show us. Give, give us an example so we can see, we can touch, we can follow, relate to. Mm-hmm. You're going to say something, Sarah? No. Nice. Yeah, Hira. Can you repeat that one more time? Jesus had it like, I said it maybe it has to do with Jesus having taken our sins. Not to come to be perfect, but Jesus did more than that. Jesus did bear our sins. Yeah, there, there's actually multi dimensions to this, right? On one level, I guess, hypothetically speaking, if someone lived a sinless life and they wanted to be a sacrifice in that way, they would satisfy one thing, but they wouldn't satisfy everything else that needed to be satisfied for us to have covenant partnership with God. Does that make sense? And so let's go to John chapter 1, beginning in verse um, 1. Verse 1 through 5. Can I get someone to read that? John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, 1 through 5. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Go for it, Barb. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. When John shares this, he wants you to see Genesis' story. In the beginning was the word. He wants to instantly connect you to uh, the creation story. And he places Jesus here for one reason and one reason in particular. And verse 14 is a huge part of that reason. The same way God walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve in fellowship and in partnership, Jesus comes and makes his dwelling among us. That same word that we use for dwelling, the Greek translation of that is tabernacle. They didn't put tabernacle because how many of us would have known what it means to tabernacle with someone? Maybe a couple of our rabbis in here would have known what tabernacling is, but everyone else would have been like, I don't know what you're talking about tabernacling. But why is it significant that John is trying to help us see that Jesus is tabernacling with us. Jesus is dwelling with us. Does anyone know what the tabernacle is? We talked about it a little bit. Does anyone remember? It was the worship place for the Jews as they were traveling in the wilderness. Yes. That's where the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant. What else took place in the tabernacle? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. It was always in the center of where, where they camped, so it was, it was kind of a, a God space. It was like space that within the Jewish community for God, right? It, it, it's like, yeah, yeah, but his presence. So it was kind of a, like a, you know, a God place or space. Absolutely, Fred. And also, it was the place where. something that people could see which relates directly to this passage here right it says God has made his tabernacle among us and we have seen his glory you know when, they, when, when uh, Moses would enter the tent the tabernacle the, the presence of God would rest on it and it was, people could see it absolutely and so the tabernacle was where the presence of God was located and so now the word is not saying my presence will be located in this, with this people at this place at this time. The word became flesh. Why do you think John chose that word? Flesh. There's another Greek word he could have used, suma, which means body, anthro for something, which means human figure. Why does he use the word sarks? Anthony. Kind of. You know, in high school, they're saying, that's the flesh right there. I didn't know they were doing that in high school. That's fired up, bro. <laughs> a lot of times, sarks is the, is the word used uh, by Paul and other writers to refer like sinful, sinful natures, that kind of group. Like sinful flesh. The, True. The weaknesses, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what do you think John is trying to communicate here? Because again, there's a whole there's a whole vocabulary of words he could have used. AJ. It's God's way of tying himself to us. Yeah, I really think so. I really think when he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, that 
everything about the flesh Jesus himself took on. The weaknesses of the flesh, the frailties of the flesh, the challenges of the flesh, he took on. I talked a little bit on Sunday about migraines. I don't know if Jesus had migraines, but he had potential for migraines because he had flesh. He never had old age. He, he never had old age too. <laughs> they took him out before he could get his old age on, man. But it's really important that we understand that every single thing Jesus had temptation for. That doesn't mean he was tempted by it, but that it could have happened by being virtue of being in the flesh. The same way we can relate to one another. If someone says, hey, I know what it's like to have a headache. You're like, I never had a headache, but I had my elbow pain. So I guess it's kind of relatable a little bit. You disagree, Stephen? That's okay. <laughs> All right, let's go to... Um, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, as we talk about the incarnation and why that's important. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Can I get someone to read that? Go for it. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Amen. I love this passage. It's talking about the gifts, but it's all, I think it's talking about something deeper here. And what I'm talking about the gifts is like, he's like, all these things are going to pass away, but love is going to stay. But I also think the revelation of who Jesus is, who God is, we only know in part, and this is our best guessing. And I think even the, the believers in the New Testament who wrote the New Testament understood this, but there'll come a day when it all makes sense. Let me ask you guys a question. So when Jesus died and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, what did he ascend as? Did he ascend as a human? And is he still human? Or did he reverse back into the word and he dropped the flesh? Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, uh, how's that for God? Um, <laughs> I don't think it's an important question, but I, I think what, what is important is, is you know, Jesus, you know, like I, I can never cry out to God and say, man, you do not know what you're asking me to do. Okay, okay. Lincoln, then Julian. I mean, I said Lincoln, Fred, then Julian. Well, we know that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. Yes. We also know from history that the early Christians, for whatever, wherever it came from, maybe from the teachings of the apostles as they went along, believed very, very deeply in the, in the resurrection of the physical body. Yeah. A glorified body, but the physical resurrection. That's why they buried people. They had arguments on, on end of what happens if someone's head is cut off and one of the head is taken over here and the body's over there. How do they put it all together? Yeah. 
when they are resurrected, how does that get reassembled? So it's not inconceivable at all that Jesus, when he ascended, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a ghost that went up into heaven. They, they saw the ascension. And we know comments like when Stephen, Stephen saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't just some vapor or some idea, right? There was a physicality to it, which I think we could probably safely assume that there was a very physical. Amen. Amen. Jules? Yeah. Yeah, Irene. Yeah, in chapter one of Acts, it says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So like you really, and even earlier, you know, it says he was taken. So I think it explains there pretty much, um, you know, the truth that after you know, like the Yeah, no, that, that's, a good, that's a good scripture, Irene. Thank you. So I hate using these terms, but it's just what our fellowship does. So I'm going to use it because it's helpful for our fellowship. There are salvation issues. I think everything at some point becomes a salvation issue, to be honest with you. doesn't matter what the doctrine is that we're trying to minimize. At some point, it can eventually become an issue that hinders your walk with God. But I'm going to use salvation issue in terms of this very second, I need to know this to believe in who Jesus is or to be in covenant with God. And then there are certain things where it's like, okay, it's okay that I don't know this for now, but prayerfully along my journey, it's going to better shape who I am as a disciple. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is important, but it may not fall into the category of urgent and important salvation issue. What does God want when he created Adam and Eve in the garden? Relationship. He wanted intimacy with them. He wants to walk with them. If God said, I cannot take all of you, it would be like, and God says this very clearly when he's talked about Adam and Eve. I mean, Adam, yeah, Adam and Eve, there was no animal who was able to be in covenant with Adam. He's like, no animal was a suitable helper. He needs another person. And so God wants this deep and intimate relationship with us so he becomes a person and becomes one of us. So that when we relate to God through Jesus, we relate to him at the most complete and utter level. Does that make sense? Like God looks at your body and doesn't say, man, you're a degree lower than me. He's like, I lowered myself to be with you. He's like, I totally understand the human experience. I totally remain in the human experience sitting at the right hand of the Father. 
So when we get into the presence of God on the last day, he isn't like, man, you're a sorry human. He's like, I loved you and I wanted this the whole time. I wanted to be able to relate to you in this way, in this fashion. And so it's not a stretch, though it may stretch you theologically, it's not a stretch to say that Jesus is God. Jesus is human. Therefore, Jesus is God. Jesus is human. Therefore, God. What? You scared? <laughs> he became human. He took on flesh. That's what we just read in John 14. At no point when Jesus was walking in the flesh was he not God. Do you guys understand that? That feels controversial. You just feel like, oh, I can't. And this is what you, you, you're resonating with our Jewish brethren. They're like, we cannot say that this dude is God. We could call him something else. We could call him the son of man. But the incarnation is really important because... A, it tells you that when you are resurrected on the last day, God will look at you and say, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And how do I know that? Because I made myself one of you. You are and have been and will always be a masterpiece. And you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm not a masterpiece, man. I got 10 extra pounds that I want to shed. God is like, you're fearfully and wonderfully made and that 10 pounds too. Because you had to kill an animal that I fearfully and wonderfully made to get that 10 pounds. <laughs> And so, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. A lot of people believe that the spirit came upon a whole bunch of people in the Old Testament. But the Spirit never created a new heart in anybody. And so that was unable to happen until Jesus allowed the Spirit to be poured out after he was raised from the dead. That's why he says, it's good that I'm going away. Because when I go away, I can help you in a way I you never imagined by sending the Spirit. And so this is really important why God had to come in the flesh. No one else could have died if they lived a perfect life and sent you the spirit. Because that was never a part of them to sin. But now the son can say, hey, I send the spirit in unity. No one else, and we're going to see, can conquer the grave except the one who created all things. He didn't create the grave. That's controversial theologically. I, you got room to believe whether or not God created the grave. But I don't think he created the grave, and we don't have to debate that. But he conquers the grave. So was it important for Jesus just to come and die? Like if Jesus would have been who he is, 30 years old, or give or take for, for some people, he got baptized by John, then a week later he got uh, crucified and said, I'm dying for everyone's sins. Would, would that have been good to go? Is his teachings important to his ministry? Yeah. Yeah. So the teachings needed to happen. Yeah. Why? The resurrection definitely needs to happen, and the teachings too. But why do you say the teachings need to happen? Because the law is powerless, and there needs to be some, some fuller understanding, some fuller control. It's kind of what I read in Hebrews. It's that this new covenant brought in is kind of the, the heart of the law. So if it was just you sacrifice and then we keep living with the law, uh, it would have 
how it's ended, what it kind of does for most of us because we're not doing so. There you go. Practicality always wins the day. Anyone else? Okay, what is the challenge that mankind has in their covenant with God or their relationship with God? It's, a, it's our favorite three-letter word. Sin. Come on, sin. And so Jesus needed to teach us what it means to walk with God. Jesus was trying to create a people for God the same way God was trying to create a people in the garden that was in complete unity with him. Without the teachings of the kingdom, we would have been redeemed and brought back to what? whatever it is we're doing before. And so Jesus wants to set a people apart to be his very own. This is Second Peter. You are a chosen people, a royal priest of the holy nation, God's special possession. You don't know that unless he teaches that. And these teachings become really important because at this point in history, when Jesus walked the earth, the world was so fractured over cultural issues, social issues, financial issues, economic issues, um, geopolitical issues. And so you all know in the kingdom, we're all one before God. Everyone in here. That's an important teaching. If we just had the old covenant, we wouldn't know that. We would have said, hey, man, I'm a special people. God created you, you made in his image, but like, I'm special. Now we can look at the, the Israelite covenant and realize they are a special people because God gave a special covenant for them, which was intended to include everyone else into that covenant. So Abraham was intended to be a blessing to the nations. He was never intended just to be a blessing for the sake of himself. And so we need the teachings of Jesus because Jesus is looking for people when he comes back. Jesus wants to tabernacle in this world, and you know how he does it? Through his church. You guys become the very presence of Jesus at the different places that you work at the different places you serve, in your homes. You, you bring the presence of Jesus. So these teachings are critical. Lincoln said the resurrection is important. Absolutely. Is the death important? Yes. <laughs> Praise God. You know, sometimes we, we, when we do um, communion, we don't do that here as much, probably because we don't have the traditional communion, but sometimes we only focus on the death. The resurrection is pro predominantly what the book of Acts proclaims. They talked about the resurrection. They're like, the grave is not empty. Jesus is alive. Jesus is still here. Sometimes that teaching can feel very challenging, but that's what they, that's what they taught. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, can I get someone to read that? So we're talking about, okay, why, how, what's Jesus' role in this story? He's God become flesh who gave us the teachings of the kingdom. How do we know we can trust these teachings? Because of his death and resurrection. It affirms it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Can I get someone to read that, Ellen? For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Come on. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you guys were going to describe God's power, would you have ever, do you ever use the cross? You know, we think of God's power in so many different ways. He could create the world in six days. He could send a lightning bolt and smoke you. He could do this and do that. Do you ever look at the cross and say, that's the power of God right there? That's the, that's the thing that stands out when I think about God and his infinite wisdom and amazement is his power displayed on the cross. You see, that message does sound foolish for those people who, who don't believe. Tell someone, hey, I want to tell you about the most powerful God I know who died for everybody. He was captured, beaten, spat on, and died for everyone. That's the power of God. Now, obviously, there's, there's other stuff you got to mention in there that, you know, he forgave people. He, but that message seems foolish. How does the cross save us? How does the cross save us? How does the cross still currently save you? By, by, the by the resurrection. Elaborate a little bit more. I would say it's, it's the cross acts as the sort of perfect sacrifice that the law of Moses alluded to. You had to have a, a lamb that was without blemish or defect sacrificed on the altar to be forgiven of sin. Jesus was that lamb. And in Revelation, he's called the lamb of God for a reason. Because he was the sacrifice that God made to act as the, the sacrifice of atonement that could forgive our sins. Okay, anyone else? Yeah, in Hebrews 10, 10, and then in 10:14, uh, it kind of echoes the fact that um, we'll be made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And then, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Nice. All right. Yeah, going along with that, actually, at the end of Hebrews 9, 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so, like, just the whole thing of dying on the cross, the perfect sacrifice, similar to what yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's, there, there are like over 13 atonement metaphors in the New Testament. Did you guys know that? 13 atonement metaphors. 13. It's crazy. And I'm pretty sure two years from now, I'm going to find two more, right? And I'm going to say 15 <laughs> atonement metaphors. Okay. So when people sin in the Old Covenant and they offered up their sacrifice, who were they offering their sacrifice to? Was it? Kind of. They were the ones kind of blessing it. Think about the different atonements in the Bible, the sin offering, the fellowship offering, this offering, that offering. What were they offering? Who? Why were they making these sacrifices? I can't hear you, Heather. It was commanded under the 
Why did God demand it? Okay. I mean, you know, there's a lot of pastors that talk about how God doesn't want sacrifice. He wants, he doesn't want, like, animal sacrifice and religious practice. He wants a heart. So maybe, you know, maybe the animal sacrifice is actually more for us than it's for God. I mean, maybe it helps us to just help God, helps us to, it's a way for us to. Okay. The question is, who are, who's the sacrifice being offered to? Lincoln shared a couple of scriptures that said, God's like, I don't need that. Because Heather said, God said, I need it. <laughs> she didn't say that. She kind of alluded to it. I'm joking with you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, but so the question is, who, is, who are we sacrificing for? Yahira. Okay. Fred? I think that the, a lot of the sacrificial system was to create an entire culture of people who would understand uh, blood sacrifice when, when they saw Jesus crucified. In other words, the, the sacrifices themselves, God demanded it, so this is a sacrifice for sin, and they do this for 2,000 years or 1,500 years, whatever it is. And there's an entire nation that understands that the sacrifice of blood is a sacrifice for sin. So that when Jesus lived it out, it didn't go unnoticed. Yeah. And so a big part of the sacrificial system was to help you understand how systemic and endemic sin is. And so when I offered up the scapegoat, we're, we're, we're telling that goat to take the sins of our entire community and go out into the wilderness and be gone and never come back here because someone in this community didn't come and do their sacrifice. So that was an important thing. That was a communal sacrifice. It wasn't for God. It was for the community to feel like we took care of the sin that was in, in the building. When I offered up my burnt offering because I offended James and stepped on his shoes, and even though he and I apologized, he was hurt. I saw the, the, the cost of that pain because I really wanted to be in God's presence. Not that God didn't want me to be in his presence, but he said, I need you to understand how and how much it's impacting you guys when you do stuff like that, when you sacrifice. So you can see it. It's kind of like those of you who have a swear jar. Hopefully no one in here is cursed. But if you have a swear jar and your thing is like filled to the brim, you get your sacrifice. Like who are you giving that money to? Prayerfully to charity. God isn't taking your money, but you may have established that to help the whole household tame their tongue to honor God. But when you put the money in the swear jar, God isn't like, yo, let me get the $8.50 that's in there. He's like, I didn't need your money. You needed that to partner with me in this community. 
And so you can see the systemic and personal nature of it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so. So a swear jar is every time you say a curse word, yeah. uh, inappropriate word, yeah. you put money in it. They use like in, in in solid now it is in solid places. They usually give it to charity. They usually try to give it to charity. Yeah, they do it in their houses. So they're trying to get everyone in the house to tame their tongue. Okay. Every time you drop one of those those words, you drop some money. Yeah, Praise God. Praise God. During the holidays, some family members come with a $100 bill and just drop it in there. And they're like, I'm cutting loose today. <laughs> You're like, there it is. Uh, all right. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Can I get someone to read that? Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. So the metaphors, the metaphors of the sacrificial system, I'm going to say this, and I know so. Jesus is not giving himself to God. Jesus, God is not over here punishing Jesus. That they're, they're on the same team. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. God loves the son. Jesus is sacrificing himself for us, but not to appease the father does that make sense so god isn't up there like i hate you if it wasn't for jesus if your theology says that god hates you if it wasn't for jesus continue to keep reading the bible and focus on jesus god loves you so much so that he sent his son so much so that a part of himself took on flesh to be in covenant and partnership with us Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. I recognize that could be controversial, so you could talk to me afterwards, and we can unpack that some more. Can I get someone to read Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15? I'll do it. Go for it. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness Amen. So, as Paul reflects on the impact of the cross, who is being defeated by the work of the cross? The powers and authorities. Satan. Yes. The powers and authorities, these spiritual forces that are all under what a lot of early Christians believe the power of Satan. How does he defeat them? Through the cross. There's another word used there that Paul uses. Disarm. He took their weapons away. What were their weapons? Death. Kind of. Our legal indebtedness. The legal charges and our debts held against us. So these powers, these systems are saying, you lied. You need to be held accountable for that. This is this way. You need to be held accountable for that. And so Christ says, I'm going to disarm them 
and remove those things that they're holding against you. How does he do that? One before that. Before forget, cancels. So he says, "How much you owe? How much you owe? How much you owe? How much you owe? Bring that all over here. Cancelled. How does he cancel it? By forgiving. Who on earth could forgive everyone else's sin? Who could do that? This is what this is. Every time in Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke." When he forgives those guys who are coming through the roof, what, what, were, what were the guys upset about? Who could forgive sins but God alone? And so when Jesus gets here, this is why he needed to come incarnate. God can take on sin and say, I've traded in, I've canceled the debt, and now you guys are forgiven. Which is awesome. Now, I know what you're thinking. Man, I owe God so much. God's like, you owe me nothing. You probably sinned this morning, and you probably feel like you're indebted to God. If you said, God, can you please forgive me? He's like, done. You're like, it can't be that easy. Absolutely that easy. But you don't know how messed up I am. Absolutely that easy. Lord, I think I'm going to mess up in 10 seconds. I got, you. I got enough grace for your 10 seconds. Which is really important that we understand that we have, this is why Jesus needs to come. God can forgive sins. So he took on everyone's legal indebtedness. Even those who reject him. And he's like, I can forgive it whenever I want. So I know sometimes we train ourselves to practice, um, you know, like I got to prove to God that I've changed. God's like, I prove to you by changing into Christ. I prove to you I'm invested in this. He's given us his spirit. He's working with us. And so he forgives us. And after he forgives us, what are we? alive. You woke up this morning not feeling alive until you had that cup of coffee. But in Christ, you were alive before then. A cup of coffee just made you awake. You were alive before you had the cup of coffee. It made us woke. <laughs> and so... The cross symbolizes forgiveness. And this is why Paul says that's the power of God. All your legal indebtedness from this moment, you're going to get in the car and you might get into a disagreement with your children, with your spouse, with your neighbor. And they're going to be like, I hope you're never forgiven. And you just have to roll your window down and say, I'm already forgiven. And I'm going to pray for more forgiveness and roll it back up and drive. You got to repent, too. That's important. <laughs> but you can seek forgiveness first. Seek it first and, and walk in the freedom that the Lord provides. Amen. And so the death and resurrection provides us with that level of freedom. Amen. So when, when Paul and all the other guys say, man, I no longer live for myself, but him who died for me, this is what they're talking about. They're like, I have a seat next to the Father. I've been taught how to live, and all my legal indebtedness is canceled. The world needed a Jesus. Because as Connor was mentioning earlier, the law couldn't accomplish that. All the law in, it, in its infinite wisdom, and it was good, Paul says, and so I agree that it was good. All the law could do for a moment is deal with things temporarily. 
What we have in the new covenant is our sins can be forgiven every single day, every single moment, just by saying, God, please forgive me. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. That simple. And so I, I, I understand and I resonate psychologically when people say, man, it's hard for me to forgive, forgive myself. But Christ is like, I already forgave you. And his forgiveness counts more than yours. And so walk in that freedom that he forgave you. Now, if you're unable to walk in that freedom, he's gracious and he's patient and he's working with you. He's working with you as you navigate that season. And so death is dead. This is one of the hardest parts to understand as a Christian, for me at least, because if this is true, then any, any form of persecution, any form of fear, any form of I don't want to give myself wholeheartedly to the kingdom is rooted in the fear of death. This is what Hebrews chapter 2 talks about. Everyone was enslaved to the fear of death. Like, the lack of amazing things we want to do for God is rooted in this fear. But the resurrection says this is no longer something we should fear. Imagine approaching Lazarus. And you're like, Lazarus, we're going to kill you. He's like, already been dead. <laughs> kill me again, dude. You know, there's a reason why his name is mentioned, like, that before, like, if you ever read through the New Testament, they don't mention certain people's names. A lot of historians think the reason they don't mention certain people's names is because those people were still in those areas and they could get in trouble for something. And so they're like, they didn't mention that Peter cut off the ear of the soldier because they're like, well, Peter was still around and all a Jew had to do was say, this document is being circulated that says Peter did this. He needs to die for this capital crime of attacking a soldier. But Lazarus put his name in there. Someone put his name in there. Maybe he was already dead by the time it happened, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't scared of dying. Like, if I was dead for four days and I came back, you got to turn me into a gif. Like, I'm, like, I'm still alive. Like, it, my life would be changed. Now, I believe it. I do believe, but I can feel like the father sometimes. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And that's a huge part of the secular age. It, it, it's told me how to put my categories and how they work. And so I'm praying every day, God, let the Holy Spirit reveal to me what's true. And so in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, we're, we're not going to read it, but Paul says nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, not even death. Like the boundaries of death that we all experience as regular people when we lose a loved one and we feel like, there's something in there that we'll never be able to connect with again, Christ's love can extend that boundary. Like even in death, that person is not separated by the love of God. No hardship, no trials, no nothing can separate you from the love of God. In the midst of your trials, in the midst of your suffering, Christ is like, I'm with you. I'm here for you. And so when we look at the problems of the world, fall and Israel, Christ is like, I can re redeem all of that and no one else has to die. I wish what was going on in Ukraine and Russia that they would believe this gospel. If they would believe this gospel, that war would end today. Like we're fighting over a land that God's going to recreate everything and we'll have enough space for everyone. Everyone will have their own vine and fig tree. Now, some of you are not fired up by having a vine and fig tree, but in the Old Testament, they were. I don't know why they were fired up. I don't even know what a vine is, but um, I'm, ex I'm excited to find out. And so death is dead. How many of you guys find this reality challenging? 
even though you made your good confession, even though you believe in the resurrection, that you find that death is dead is challenging. You know, I think realistically, everyone here on this side, you know how I know for a fact I know if you weren't, you probably would have been locked up already. <laughs> Seriously, someone would have put you behind bars because you would have just been coming, or I would have seen you plastered all over social media because they'd be like, this person is just insistent on the reality of their lordship of Jesus. Like, they're just insistent. Read the book of Acts. These guys were so insistent. Like, Paul got stoned. How many of us have to get stoned once? We'll be like, I don't even know because we're scared we might die. Paul got stoned and he went back into the city. You know he wasn't married. <laughs> Your wife would say, why are you going back over there? You don't learn. <laughs> but seriously, read the book of Acts. Peter, all those guys, they got arrested. Like if I got arrested and people were like, oh, yeah, man, you got arrested for preaching this message that everyone hated. I want to say confidently that next Sunday, or that same Sunday, if I got arrested Saturday, got free Saturday, Sunday, da, 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 da. That's exactly what the, the apostles did because they saw the resurrection. They believed in it. They're like, death is death. You could kill me if you want. That's okay. I know what I saw and I know what I believe. As disciples of Jesus, this is something we got to start praying about. Like, believe this. God, help me believe this then you will no longer have a boring day in your Christianity. I'm willing to wager. Because now you're thinking to yourself, should I say that that person shouldn't do this to this person? Death is dead. Jesus is Lord. Don't do that. That's wicked. That's wrong. Don't oppress this person. Don't treat this person. Should I share the gospel with this person? What if they hate me? What if they fire me? What if I get fired and then I lose my job and then I die? Death is dead. Easier said than done. I experience it too. Where I'm like, huh, well, what if I'm wrong? What if I haven't studied this subject enough? I've studied the resurrection enough to know that the resurrection occurred. That's why I placed my faith in Jesus. And I need to move on that faith that I have. It leads me to Matthew 28. We know this passage. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus' entire ministry, his incarnation, his teaching, his death and resurrection, his subsequent ascension points to the reality that there is a new kingdom breaking in and he's calling all people to participate in it. One of the biggest tragedies that the comfort of the American church has brought all of us is it's easy to be a Christian on Sunday. It's exceedingly easy to be a Christian on Sunday. One of the other challenges, it's exceedingly easy to be a Christian who give offering. You give offering, you show up in our fellowship, you participate in small group, you are winning. But when you read through the four gospels, you read through the epistles, you see a people who are like, I am faithful to this Jesus no matter where it leads me. I am committed to this Jesus no matter where it leads me. The kingdom has my priorities and my allegiance in all shapes and forms. And so when Jesus commissioned his followers to go make disciples, some of them doubted. And they still went. 
I love that. I love that you, sometimes you can be like, I'm fully persuaded of everything I just saw, and you're talking right now, so that means you're back from the dead, but I still doubt that you're probably even talking, man. You know, probably the 11 looked at each other like, is that really Jesus? They're like, dude, who else is it? And you're like, all right, man, let's go. <laughs> Guys, if we believe this message, we become intentional about bringing the kingdom everywhere we are. Yeah. Starting in our households first. And I'm not just talking about evangelism, though I am talking about evangelism. You start bringing a kingdom in how you serve, how you love, how you give. You start saying to yourself, how do I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Because you believe in a resurrection. And you start to stand out in that way. And it doesn't have to come from the pulpit. It doesn't have to come from me. You don't feel this immense guilt like, oh, gosh. Why do I want to gather for Wednesday? Why do I want to gather for Sunday? What's, why are people looking? You're like, I'm coming here to worship and encounter the living God so I could go out there and be his faithful presence wherever I go. Well, people won't like it. I wasn't popular before I became a disciple. I won't be popular as a disciple. Some of you were popular. And if you were, then that's okay. Consider that rubbish compared to knowing Christ, which is what Peter, I mean, Paul says in... in uh, in um, Philippians. So I want to ask you guys, as we're telling this story, can we start talking about this Jesus, this incarnated Jesus who came, taught people how to love well, taught people what holiness was and what holiness is, taught people how to not be a slave of money and not be a slave of popularity, but be someone who's thoroughly and utterly committed to love of neighbor and worship in honor of God. Can we believe that you, you have a resurrection to look forward to? That regardless of anyone's criticism of you, you have a resurrection to look forward to. As Peter said, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you profess. So in the midst of your suffering, and someone says, why are you suffering? What are you going through? What are you doing? You say, man, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And so you go and you go help other people know Jesus. You go and you help other people experience the presence of the kingdom of God. Any thoughts as we wrap up here? Or anything that needs clarifying on? All right. Stephen? You got any thoughts, buddy? No? All right. All right, we're done.